Hello, and welcome to We're Only Human. I'm Tim John. Today, I am so excited. I am so excited for today's guest. I have this giant smile on my face. Jill is someone who I met many years ago in Chicago when the Chicago tech scene was uh, just starting to build up and we would run run into each other at events. And I think we probably talked to each other on Twitter, that kind of thing, Um, back when Twitter was cool. not a big fan of Twitter now. Not on Twitter now. Anyway, um, Jill was someone who was starting her own business and uh, just, uh, she called herself at the time a human sparkler and just someone who is so positive, so just a ray of light. And when I thought about this season and asking people the question, who are you? Gosh, I just really couldn't wait to hear in Jill's own words how that ray of light came to be and and just understand more about her desire to bring such positivity to this world, especially these days. So before we talk to Jill, we need to do a quick sound check. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Oh, what did I have for breakfast this morning? My usual, a piece of toast and two eggs with everything bagel seasoning on top. Do you ever get to a point where you feel like you need, like, oh, I've had the same breakfast now for, I don't know, seven months, I need a new breakfast? Or is that just like, it's what gets you going? I'm just not a morning person. So like, I like that I don't have to think about it. Like it just (laughs) happens. Today, I am joined by Jill Felska, and we are both... No one can see us, but we were both sitting in our own closets recording. <laughs> Jill is a daughter, a sister, founder of Want to Work There, an education and training company on a mission to create a happier workforce. And Jill, I thought about this. I'm like, if someone asked me, oh, Jill Felska, who's that? I would say, you're an, you remind me a little bit of me in some traits. I think you're an eternal optimist, which I, I identify as. I think you're a lifelong learner. I think you're someone who, not only about yourself, but about the world. I think you have this desire to learn about both of those streams simultaneously. I think you're a lifelong, you are on a lifelong mission to create positive change in the world. And I think anything that gets in your way, and I share this a little bit too, to you presents itself as like an opportunity. It's like, all right, we can just figure this out. Like it's not a problem. And Last year, um, in 2021, uh, during the inauguration, um, Amanda Gorman, she's the United States Poet Laureate, she did the most moving uh, poem, I think, that we all ever heard. And there was that line that we've all quoted now, there is always light, if only we are brave enough to see it, if only we are brave enough to be it. I think that's Jill Felska, that line right there. That's what I would say if somebody asked me, if somebody asked you, who are you, what would you say? I mean, first of all, that might be the the kindest, most life-affirming introduction anyone has ever given me in my life. So thank you. Um, and welcome. Amanda Gorman, man, she has a place in my heart. And you saying that line like just gave me goosebumps all the way up and down my arms because it's just so true. Um, so thank you for that. Wow. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but yeah, who am I? I, you know, I was thinking about this question and I think, you know, you talked about being an 
optimist or an idealist. And one of the things that I have kind of taken on as a label in like the last, I don't know, however many years is being a pragmatic idealist. Because I think that, and I see that in you too, because I am an idealist, but I also have this incredible desire to do something about it. Like, I don't just want to talk about the ideal. I want to like get closer to it. Um, you want to so, take action. And I see that in you too. I want to take action. I want to, you know, no, nothing's ever going to be perfect, but I do believe that there's always opportunity for us to create better. And yeah, so pragmatic idealist for sure. <laughs> um, why? My, <clears throat> I like oh, I like the word idealist. Why idealist? Like, why would you pick that word to describe yourself? Because I think I have and always have had these sort of rose-colored glasses mm. on <laughs> since I was born. Um, I just, we all have the opportunity to show up as our best selves on any given day. And that doesn't mean that we do. Um, it's hard. And and some days we do better at it than others. But I, I just always think, and maybe optimist is the better word, but I, I think there's something about looking for the ideal scenario, even when things don't seem shiny and bright. It is, I guess it's exactly Amanda's quote. It's like, yeah, there yeah. is light if you'll only look for it. Like it's there, but you have to be able to dig past the gloom and dig past the naysayers and dig past the realists, which there's nothing wrong with realists. <laughs> it's just a different <laughs> lens. Um, and and yeah, and and see that light. So that's probably why. Yeah, you talking about Amanda Gorman now, I'm thinking of that line that I quoted and the line that I think we all love, but you look at those words that she said and they're not fancy prestigious words like they're they're simple words but it's just a so fantastic how you can take words and it depends on how you say them when you say them what combination you say them that those simple words become more powerful than many words we say every day and i just i don't know i'm just in awe of that Yes. It's what I think made so many of us resonate with her is like she had this incredible opportunity to stand up literally in front of a huge amount of the world. And she didn't lean on big, fancy words. She just it like cut to the core with simplicity. And I think that is, it's hard to do. It is like so hard to do, but it's something that I think all of us should try to do more because the accessibility, that's the word I'm looking for. The accessibility of using words that are simple and that everybody gets is highly underrated. I think. I would agree with that. We've known each other, so I don't even know when we first met, but it was definitely over a decade ago. This is the part where we realized that time has passed and we were older than we were a decade ago. But <clears throat> I, um, when I was preparing to, to talk with you today, um, I remembered that about a decade ago, it was 2010 or 2011, I had interviewed you and your friend Jen Kren. Um, who at the time was a co-founder. You both had started this business, Pop Social Media. 
Uh, and I had a different podcast way back then. And so I interviewed you both. I think I was at either your condo or Jen's condo, and we were sitting in your living room, all three of us. And the the headline that I ended up publishing with that interview was how to enroll in the grad school of life by starting your own business. And when I came across that interview the other day, I thought to myself, that was over 10 or 11 years ago. Um, we all three of us were, were very young, probably in our early 20s or mid 20s. Um, I was curious, when you hear that headline, What's your reaction to that uh, a decade later? Like, I think it's a pretty powerful statement that we were trying to stay there, that like you and Jen were embarking on this amazing adventure. And I'm just kind of curious, what does is, what is that headline sort of mean to you now? I love that. I'm just smiling because I can remember literally sitting together with you Same. doing that podcast, which is so crazy to think like you were totally ahead of your time in podcasting that many years ago, first of all. Um, But secondly, it was just such a highlight for us. And it was just such a fun conversation. And I think I didn't remember the headline. So until you said that, I was just remembering the joy of having that conversation and getting to be there and do it with Jen, who is still a dear, dear friend who I miss. And um, all the day, all the days. Yeah, all the time, all the days. Um, (laughs) But Yeah, the grad school of life. I still, I mean, the reason that we were talking about that is because Jen and I were very young, 22 and 23. Um, We quit our first corporate job about eight months uh, out of college. So we landed that job right out of college. We we quit it eight months later for a whole nother reason that could be a whole nother story. Um, But we started this business and we both had journalism undergrad degrees. Neither of us had a business background. And we just sort of kind of went into it with this mentality of we're going to learn as we go. And we're going to absorb all the lessons we're learning and share all the lessons we're learning (laughs) as we go along um, in placement of going to grad school. So, you know, do I think that our you know, we did we learn as much as we would have learned in grad school? Yes, but in a different way, in like a practical real life way. And one's not better than the other. But I look back at that period of my life with just such pure joy and happiness. Like even when things were hard, we just it was constantly learning and growing and trying without any preconceived notions of what we had to achieve. Like anything we achieved was like mind blowing to us. We were like, we did this thing. And I think as you get older, you like start to have these preconceived notions of like what you're supposed to achieve when you launch something or, you know, whatever that looks like. And and we were just so green and just so joyful in everything we did. And wow, what a gift that time was. Totally. I found a Facebook post of yours from around that time, I think it was September of oh, no. 2010. It was back when we all used to put you know, it had your name and said like is, and then we all kind of wrote like status. It was like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Tim John is, and then I wrote whatever I, my status update was. So you wrote, you know, Jill Felska is spending the afternoon with Jen. We're figuring out how to change the world. Mm. Yeah, I saw that and I thought, yeah, that's that's about right. I remember them doing that. <sighs> Man, when you find that business, I'm going to totally call Jen after this because now I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. But man, when you find that business partner or those people that 
share a vision with you and and share a desire to create change, it is so special and so energizing and so um, all-encompassing. I mean, I just remember us feeling like we could take on the world and change the world. Like we were, we were there, we were doing it. Um, and was it a very small pocket? Absolutely. Um, but I think we made our mark in small ways and that's kind of what matters at the end of the day. And I just love, oh man, I love our beautifully naive passion, maybe not naive, but maybe a little naive. <laughs> that like we were really going to change the world. I love that. You almost you almost I think you need to be naive, you know? Like I like yeah. I said at the beginning, uh, I I love to learn too. Like I feel like we both share that sort of like just throughout life we're we're hopefully going to continue to learn as as we get older. I I feel like when you're young as a a kid, we're more exposed to learning, we're more expected to learn and then as you get older it's like not as common um but knowing that like knowing that you're a lifelong learner and someone who really enjoys that would you have changed anything you know from from that beginning of your journey from from jumping into the grad school life with jen and and all the fun adventures you had uh, in that business and the other businesses absolutely not not in any way, shape or form. And, you know, the reason that I quit that job was because I was going through some sexual harassment from a senior boss. And that piece was icky and really unfortunate and is what made me so passionate about this idea of creating a better work world. Um, But when people look back and go, oh, you know, that's so horrible. I'm like, you know, I, I wouldn't change it because it's what started Jen and I on this journey. And gave us the, you know, gumption <laughs> to jump at that young age and just figure out what would happen. Um, and it's what drove me to be passionate about the work that I do still to this day that still makes me happy. So no, absolutely not. And um, I always say, like, if you're not learning, like, what's the point? <laughs> so absolutely, like, lifelong learning forever. And it does get harder, especially when I think we get more senior in our careers and we feel like we need to be the expert in the room. So um, I love that piece of the journey. And honestly, just like sitting here having this conversation and remembering that, I feel like I'm like, okay, I need to like reinfuse some of that just like beginner, excited, let's see what happens energy into more aspects of my life. But Right. I, I recently took up an improv class. I made a pact with myself during the, the pandemic that once this was all over and it was safe, at least, that I would enroll in an improv class. And I did. And we've only had two classes so far. But last week, the, the games we were playing, I, I came home and I was like, oh, my God, I'm learning a lot. But I'm also learning a lot about myself. Like, I'm not as good as reacting. I'm better at starting and all this. And I'm like, I'm learning. Oh, my God. I'm like in my mid thirties and I'm learning. Hell yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's like I see it with my kids all the time. I got 11 and seven and they're constantly learning and teaching me things. And I, you, I have this perspective now of like, well, I got to make sure I'm still learning too. Like I, I better still be learning. Like that can't ever stop. Yes. Did you have though that sense of like uncomfortability in the moment? Like when you were at the improv oh, yeah. lesson and like have that moment where you're like, <gasps> Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, I, we've had two classes so far and I 
both times I've gone, I've been excited to go and I love being there. But at the same time, it's like a balance of excitement, but also nervousness and complete uncomfortability, which I, it's always a weird thing to say, but like I enjoy being uncomfortable in those scenarios. And I, I, I think that's part of pushing yourself and learning. Are you someone like that too? Like, do you, are you intentionally putting yourself in, and I'm not talking about unsafe scenarios, but in, in uncomfortable scenarios, knowing that you're going to push yourself beyond your boundaries? I think in work, yes, all the time. <laughs> in my life, life outside of work, um, not as often. And it, it was when you were talking about this improv class, it was reminding me, same kind of thing, like it got safer. Now I'm back not taking classes, but it got safer again. And I was taking these hip hop dance classes. And oh, fun. I was in this room with all these people who clearly danced when they were younger, which I did not in any sort of, you know, group coordinated way. Um, and I was struggling and I just kept looking around and like feeling immense like shame almost of like, why can't I pick these steps up? Like everybody else is getting it. And it was like this total moment of uncomfortable, just my whole body was like wanted to just hide. And um, I left and got in my car and was like, man, it is so important that I do this outside of work still, because like, why shouldn't we be putting our like, it's okay to be a beginner. And for some reason, my perfectionism kicked in. And it was like, Jill, no one's no one in this room cares whether or not you got the steps down. But for some reason, that's all I could think about in my head in that exact moment. And like, it just kind of recentered for me, like, seeking out those moments of being uncomfortable is important. And as someone with social anxiety, I don't do it as often as I probably could in things outside of like work scenarios. So, yeah. You mentioned that your perfectionism kicked in. What role does perfectionism play in your life? Ugh, a crabby one? No. A crabby one. <laughs> um, <laughs> crabby. It's just crabby. Uh, um, no, I, you know... I feel like I'm trying to get better at not being such a perfectionist. I think all of us struggle with that in some ways, but it's not what the biggest issue is for me is that it stops me from trying sometimes. So like, for instance, I've had an idea for a podcast for four years. And one of the reasons I have not launched said podcast is because every time I go and sit down and start thinking about it, I'm like, oh, but yeah, I'd have to get the audio editing just right. And I'd have to like sit down and make sure the interviews were lined up that were, you know, the ideal interviews. And it's like, just do, like, just start. You don't have to be perfect when you start. Like, and I think that barrier for me is where I really rub up against perfectionism is like putting something out into the world that doesn't have to be perfect. Like better is, is perfect. What is the same? Done is better than perfect is something that I refer back to sometimes when I'm like really <laughs> struggling of like, is this good enough? It's like, Jill, done is better than perfect. Ship the thing. <laughs> yes. I can so relate to that. I went through the same in regards to launching a podcast. I went through the same sort of <clears throat> not, not before launching the podcast. I launched the podcast with no plan and no, no nothing. I just went and did it. So that part I got, but while, while I was doing it and now even with um doing season two, I 
I guess I have a little bit of that perfectionism too, because with the audio editing and with the quality, I just feel like I want to put out the best product possible and I want it to be crisp audio and perfectly edited and all this. And to your point, I think, excuse me, I think in the first season, I was really obsessed with that. But then I found, here's here's a tip for you, but maybe take it or leave it. But what I found to help with that is... um, I listen to a lot of other podcasts too. And the other day I discovered some new podcast. So I downloaded an episode of it. This was on Wondery. Wondery is, you know, a big podcast network. So in my eyes, it's kind of like, you know, the, the professionals and the, the the big players. And so I'm listening to the random episode from this podcast on the Wondery network. And uh, it's all professionally done. But the one host, uh, and I don't mean this bad to that host. But you, Jill, you have a great microphone right now. You sound super professional. You sound way better right now than that host did. They must have been zooming in or something. And I thought to myself, okay. And so I'm listening and my my audio file ear at first is like, oh, wow, really should have sounded better there. And I'm listening. And all of a sudden, I just get engrossed in the conversation. And then I realized, well, you didn't care that his audio wasn't perfect. You didn't care that this or that. And I thought, okay. Maybe when I'm editing this season, I can let it go a little bit. Like I want to create the best product I can, but I'm maybe I'm going to be less perfectionist about it. Um, so my tip there is like go maybe go listen to other podcasts that you respect and revere, and notice the flaws in theirs, and then decide you know do you really care about the flaws, you know, or do you do you see past them? Yeah, is that why you show up? Like, is it? I was just on a call with some friends, colleagues of mine earlier today, and I was sharing something similar. And she's like, oh, you know, I was just listening to this comedian. And the comedian was like, you know, no one like tunes in for like the editing prowess of a podcast. No one's like, you should really listen to Whitney Cummings. Her editing is on point. That's (laughs) so true. So true. Accurate. Accurate. (laughs) So um, we can maybe both let go of that a little bit and still know that I think, you know, one of the other things we share is we're storytellers. And I think there is something about um, taking away the distractions when you're telling a story so that someone can connect. And that's what I get with the audio. But yes, I think both of us can try and be a little less uh, sensitive to it and know that they're tuning in to, to hear the conversation, to just connect with you know you and the story and what's happening absolutely yeah i found too it also helps to just like you said talking to your friends it helps to get that outside perspective that other you know because you and i like you said storytellers a little bit of perfectionists we got the headphones on and we're listening to every little you know minuscule sound we hear and then you talk to someone else who's listening to your podcast in the middle of their life and kind of get their perspective and they're like yeah it was great i didn't notice anything wrong with it <laughs> Like, what do you mean you were breathing there for a second? That <laughs> I keep editing out the breathing noises. It's like, chill. No one. No one's listening. <laughs> no one's oh, my God. This. Anyway. I'm so glad we're talking about this, Jill, because I do that, too. <laughs> I also, you know, any coughing I do or anything I would edit out. This season, I told oh, yeah. myself, I'm like, you're leaving it all in. You're going all raw here. And even then, like us talking right now, I find myself like, okay, I know I'm not editing this. So don't, you know, don't make crazy noises or, you know, cause you're not going to edit it out. Like this is all raw. I, I'm the same way though. Editing other breathing. I love this for us. We're not going to edit. You're not going to edit this podcast. We're just going to sit in the glory that is all of our little weird breathing noises or yes. laughing fits. I'm here for it. This sit is good. in the this glory. Is good for I both love of that. Us. This is, yeah. I, this is good for both of us. <laughs> 
This has been podcast therapy brought to you by Jill and Tim. Right? <laughs> For all the podcasts. Tune in next week there. when we'll be talking to you about, yeah. <laughs> so I know, uh, well, I, I'm pretty sure we've never talked about your family before, but I, I believe you have two sisters and a brother, and then you have parents. <laughs> this is from what I understand your family structure. Um, I bring it up because uh, I think a large part of I've learned this about myself the past couple of years is I started to reflect on who I am and how I operate and how my parents influenced that, whether they know it or not. And I, re- I started to realize how they did. I started to kind of dive in and understand that. And so I think there's a part of us, or I mean, there is a part of us that's influenced by our parents, you know, an identity, a part of our identity. So I'm curious for you, like, what role do your parents play in who you are and, you know, who you've become? Yeah, gosh, really great question that I too have been thinking a lot about. Um, my big, I think we all had in some way or another a pandemic aha, something in your life that because we were forced to pause and sit more, I think, with our emotions than we've ever had to in our existence, just because there was some forced sort of containing of our lives. Um, I think we all had some sort of aha. And that could have been really small, could have been really big. For me, it was really big. And that aha was that as a 34-year-old woman, I realized and accepted for the first time that I was not straight, that I was queer. And that was a very strange thing to learn while you're living alone in your house during the pandemic. (laughs) Um, And also an incredibly beautiful thing that I got to explore. And, you know, part of what that brings up for me in relation to my parents is that my dad's a pastor. And so um, although I have not been extremely religious, you know, my whole life, I have an incredible, immense, deep respect for my dad and a very, very close relationship with my dad, who, you know, ultimately believes that being gay or queer or bi is wrong. And so, you know, I think that part of me, from an identity perspective, pushed down and compartmentalized that part of myself. Um, And this is not to say anything bad about my dad. This is to speak to family dynamics and how those around us really can shape and and um, be role models almost, be motivators for us as to sort of how we show up in the world. Now, I say all this with there is so much that I have gotten from my dad um, as a pastor. He's he's why I'm a story. He's why I'm a storyteller. He is why I have an immense amount of empathy um, and why I think I see the world in an optimistic lens. And, you know, I've been through my own journey with him in this coming out process. But when I looked back and went, how did you get through 34 years of your life without realizing that this was part of your identity? Um, you know, that family structure played into that. And there's some healing that's had to happen there in sort of, you know, me kind of owning my own identity that doesn't necessarily align with the family structure. And I know I'm not the only person who's experienced that. So that's been an interesting part for me about how much my queerness has become a part of my identity. Granted, it's been about two and a half years now, and it was a journey for me to get there. Like, 
two years ago, I would not have sat here and talked about this with you. Um, so it's been my own journey of like coming to acceptance with who I am and what that means. But man, it has become part of my identity now and how I show up in the world and how I relate to the world and how I, you know, identify in the world. And um, there's a joy in it, honestly, that I didn't expect to come from that piece of it. And I think finding a balance between our relation and our admiration of our parents, for which I have tons still to this day. My mom too, whole nother side of admiration. Um, and, and embracing that while also knowing that you have to step into your own self and into that light. And there's, without doing that, you can never really truly be accepted by your family because you're not being who you are. So very crazy shift, I think, in the last few years about how my dynamics and how I show up and and in my relationship with my parents, but important, super, super important. What you just said about the admiration, balancing the admiration, the relation with our parents, Jill, that just strikes home so much because, I mean, lately, I mean, my dad, I mean, he's on the older side. I think he's got his birthdays next week in 72, 71 or 72. Um, math is hard. But <clears throat> I think, you know, it's it's uh, not to get morbid, but it's been on my mind more lately that like, you know, he's getting older and my parents are getting older. And I, every time that, you know, I, I don't know how it is for you, but I'm sure for all of us at some point, you know, we're, we're our parents get on our nerves. I'm sure at some point we get on their nerves. And you know, anytime that happens where I'm around my parents and, and I'm fortunate enough, I get to see them a lot, but I'm around them and I think, you know, oh my God, like I can't take any more, you know, we've, we've been together enough. Um, we need to go take a break now. I balance that with like that day that will come and I hope not for a very, very long time, but that day that will come where I won't be able to have those moments with them. I would give anything for that. I don't care if they were pissing me off the whole time. Like I would want those moments. And so that the way you said that balance, I feel that so vividly. Like I'm trying to lean on the side of like just soaking up every single moment, you know, and, and just truly letting everyone be who they are, even if we're, you know, there's friction between us. But just because yeah. I don't know, I feel that so much more like that there there eventually won't be a balance. No, I mean, same. My dad's on the older side too. My dad's 14 years older than my mom. So like there is still, and I think especially with COVID, you know, I don't live physically close to my parents. So, um, you know, getting into COVID and really not seeing them um, because I was pretty cautious was one of those, again, aha moments of like the terrifying thought that like if my dad especially were to get sick and I couldn't get home and never saw him again. Like, what would I want to make sure? See, look, I'm going to cry. What would I want to make sure that I had said to him? And, you know, I think that's the other one of the other parts of COVID that became really real for all of us amidst a ton of political turmoil, amidst an incredible move for racial justice, and a lot of things that honestly brought some of these, like, we just don't talk about it (laughs) topics to the forefront that created tension, I think, generationally with some of us and our parents. Um, It was also completely juxtaposed with um, 
man, life is fragile and it's not worth it to necessarily, we can't let those things get in the way of, of having a relationship and spending that time and, and finding that togetherness doesn't mean that you're going to agree on everything or that there are going to be perfectly harmonious running through a field of daisies Saturdays where you're, you know, that's, that's (laughs) not it, but it's taking that time and, and, and having that connection because it could be gone. And I have friends who have lost parents and would give anything to have that time. So, um, you just, you realize what a gift it is, even when it feels hard. I very much feel that. Absolutely. I'm so happy for you that you, you had that aha moment about yourself during, you know, during these times or those times, I feel like we're still kind of in those times, um, you know, where so much of the world changed for us and I think froze and we kind of froze in time. I'm so happy that you had that sort of realization about yourself. I'm, I'm thinking though, that like knowing, you know, that relationship with your, your dad must've, what I'm trying to figure out here is where did you find the strength at that time to like sort of stand up and be like, okay, this is who I am. I know that dad, you know, might not fully agree. Like I'm going to have to talk to dad about this. That that's gotta be really hard. Like what, what, like at that point in your life kind of like was the inspiration or the motivation or the impetus for you to like, sort of be like, all right, I'm ready for that conversation. Yeah. Well, um, shout out Glennon Doyle um, for writing the book that totally cracked me open called Untamed, um, where she talked about her queerness, but also in a religious frame and how some of the stories that she was raised on made her shove down some of her feelings. And that was literally the thing that cracked this all open for me. And um I don't think that ironic is the right word, but it's actually our dear, dear mutual friend, Tracy, who uh, had posted on Instagram probably like week one or two of the pandemic that she was missing Glennon's book tour because Glennon wasn't going on tour and how this book. And so I went and got the book because it was on Tracy's Instagram and um, completely devoured it and was like, holy crap. Okay, there is a lot to unpack here. So fast forward. I mean, it took me a year more than a year to tell him. Um, I told people other than him, my mom, my, you know, was uh, wonderfully embracing of me the second that I let her know. My brother, same thing. Uh, my baby sisters totally gave me, they're, they're my half sisters. They're not babies anymore. They probably uh, <laughs> hate me saying that, but they're 15 years younger and they will always be babies to me. Of course. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but like, I remember, like, I love this generational difference. I remember telling my, one of my, sisters and being like, um, by the way, uh, I'm queer. And she's like, oh yeah, cool. I'm bisexual. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) So like, (laughs) this is a thing that like, if I would have just been a generational later, like, man, it's so much more accepted and, oh, hallelujah for that. And all of the more prevalent stories and more prevalent examples that, you know, kids have these days. It makes me beyond happy. But anyway, I say this because um, it took me a while to to have the conversation with my dad. And I was terrified. I was terrified I was going to lose 
honestly the most important relationship in my life. <laughs> he is. And, and, oh, see, woo. Oh, Tim, only you would get me crying here on the podcast. That's not true. I cry. This is, a, it's a cathartic thing, people. We should not be afraid of crying. I was um, just going to say, <laughs> nothing wrong with it. Oh, nothing wrong with crying. Um, you know, I, I, it it took me a long time and and to be fully transparent you know our relationship isn't in the best place and you know we're not really talking and that's really hard and i knew i needed to do it and you know I, he didn't completely abandon me but i think what he's struggling with which makes so much sense is that and and i think you and i get this as at least for me like so much of my identity for so long has been tied into my career and the work that i do because i'm so passionate about the work that i do and so for him his entire life has been you know there's a blurry 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 line between what is his career and what is his life and that's especially true as a pastor i think in religion i mean that is your relationships, your community, and your belief system. I mean, his belief system has been built on these principles. And, you know, in his defense, basically what I'm saying is like, take a sledgehammer to one of your principles. And I think how he feels is like, if that's not true, then what is true? Like, it's not just, and I think that's the different, the different, uh, angle that I had to look at it as. And honestly, it was really helpful for me in other contexts, like in having, you know, difficult conversations with people about deep seated beliefs in this time when everything feels, you know, uh, very, everyone feels very strongly about whatever side it is that they, you know, sit on. And, and so for me to understand for him, like, I'm not just asking him to accept and agree with this one thing. For him, it feels like, well, if I accept and agree with this one thing that my entire life I have believed and taught and um, held as something that is wrong, then I have to look at everything. And that's his entire existence because his belief system is so tied up in who he is. So, I mean, I think that is one of the things and that's his work to do. I can't do that work for him. Um, and, and that's something I've had to accept, but man, it is super wide, wide eye. It's super eye opening. And, um, I think is what allows me to have a lot of empathy and compassion for, for where he sits in this moment in, in his own understanding of this. I was just going to say, it's so amazing that you have such empathy and compassion and understanding for him and, you know, where he might be in, in, like you said, trying to figure out the principles and, you know, questioning possibly his own beliefs and things that it's so fantastic that you can be so, I mean, that you are, I mean, that's who you are, right? Empathetic and compassionate, but uh, kudos to you for that's I can't, I've never been in that situation. And I can't imagine that's an easy place to be in. So sounds to me like you're, you're handling it in a very healthy way. Oh, well, thank you. It's not easy. And he also, to his credit, was like, I love you and I'm proud of you. And that's not going to change. And man, there are so many kids out there that don't have that. So like, even though my dad and I are trying to rebuild this relationship and find a new way of connecting, like the rug never got pulled out from underneath me. And like, how many people have that? So like, there is this piece of me that still feels lucky because it could be so much different, you know? Oh, for sure. 
You mentioned your baby sisters, um, that you shouldn't call them baby sisters because they're not <laughs> not babies anymore, yeah. but you said they are 15 years younger than you. That is, you know, that's that's definitely, you know, you, you gave the example of the, the generation gap kind of there. Um, do you ever, uh, do you ever feel like you have some sort of responsibility as like a role model, you know, having that age gap, knowing that you're a good amount older than them, that you feel like you want to, you know, model or have your life be a model for them? Oh, totally. I mean, yeah, we, we joke that they're the second generation in our family. Um, (laughs) and so like, you know, when I was 15 and because they were, they're identical twins. So, you know, my mom had one, I had one in a grocery store. So because (laughs) there was two of them. So, you know, I've always, I think had sort of this like weird second mom or like cool aunt thing, um, with them, which is fun. And, um, I think the thing that I was happy to model for them is that, you know, I grew up in a pretty small town in Minnesota. Um, and, I made the decision when I graduated high school to leave and go to college in a different state and then to move to Chicago and then to move to San Diego and then, you know, so I got out and really explored. And and I think if anything, that was what I hoped my little sisters would take away from that is that, you know, the town I grew up in is kind of one of those towns where a lot of not a lot, but but a good handful of people stay like that kind of becomes the world. And that's okay. But I also really wanted them to see that they could go out and do anything they wanted to do and be anywhere in the world. And um, one of them actually lives in Chicago now. And it just like makes my heart so happy. It's like total full circle, like literally lives in the neighborhood where I used to live. Like, (laughs) so it just feels very like wonderfully full circle. Um, But yeah, I absolutely do. And I think, you know, at the same time, they're also on their own journeys. And so it's sometimes just fun to watch and see like they're they're living different lives than I am. Um, also, they're in college and I'm not going to lie. It's really weird. Like I get now why parents like hearing about them drinking or like things I'm like, oh, my gosh, they can't be drinking. Are you kidding me? This is not safe. And then I think about things that I did in college and I'm like, Jill, let them be kids. Um, so it's a very weird thing to have sisters that are like, you know, 15 years younger. It's just, just a different dynamic, but a wonderful one. And yeah, so grateful for them. It's it's so cute to hear. I mean, I'm sure you, you're protective of them and, you know, kind of have that, like you said, parental aspect to it because of the age gap. But that's so I, I'm sure they super, you know, appreciate that and love that. I mean, probably most of the time, but I think sometimes too, they're like, aren't you supposed to be the cool sister? (laughs) Come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're supposed to really (laughs) lean into that cool aunt role. Right. I know I try, but man, I'm telling you, the protection kicks in real quick. I get it now with parents. (laughs) Kids going off to college. I'm like, oh. I have thought about that. Like. My dad didn't let me, I have two siblings, neither one of the three of us could drive. Uh, We could not get our license until we were 17, as opposed to 16, which is the standard usually. And it's because my dad, uh, I think he broadsided a cop or something. He had some accident where like we were basically paying for his mistake, where he's like, you're all not getting your license. You know, when you're like 16 and everyone's got, you know, it's like the worst thing in the world socially. Um, but now I think about like my son's 11. So he's approaching driving age. (laughs) Like this is, he's closer to driving age than he is to when he was born. And so I thought like, I mean, I'm on the road. 
I, I'm a good driver, but I mean, usually there, there's a lot of people on the road. I'm like, I don't think you should be driving to like 25. I'm like, we, you know, <laughs> I think, I think you, you, once you can drink or I don't know, once you're in college, you could drive. Like I can't imagine driving at 15 years old. That's in four years. He should not be on the yeah, road isn't that in four weird? years. It's weird when you like start to, yeah, yeah, right, absolutely. So I totally get that. And then, yeah, parental view. <laughs> yeah, well, and and then of course all they can see is the other side, which is like what you said. Everybody else is doing it. Everybody, and so it's like you find that balance of like letting go. I'm saying this like I'm a parent. <laughs> I have, do not have kids. I am very single. This is not a, <laughs> no advice to give in this area. Um, I love how you prefaced but, it with again, I am very single. <laughs> yes. Very single. <laughs> I don't know why I threw that in, actually, and now I'm blushing, so that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's important to know. I mean, it's part Tim, of- if I end up meeting my significant other because they heard me on your podcast and somehow we find each other, <laughs> you, my friend, you can, like, officiate the wedding, like, really whatever you want. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Before you meet your significant other on this podcast, I need to meet my significant other on this podcast. Like before oh, my guests okay. start finding their their uh their uh their one and only <laughs> their person. <laughs> yeah, their person. Their penguin. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, great. Um this is now tune in next week when we will be a dating service. Um so for we've both covered, Tim and I. We've covered podcast production <laughs> advice. We've covered dating. <laughs> They're so multi-talented. I'm telling you. I love it. One, you know, was it this morning? I usually, I usually think about these conversations like the night before, or or sometime close to when I'm going to talk to you, because I like to have it fresh in the mind. And I think it, I think it was this morning in the shower. Actually, I was just like thinking, oh, I'm going to talk to Jill later. And you know, I was thinking. Um, I remember you. A long time ago, I don't know if you used to put it in your bio or if you used to put it in your LinkedIn or I don't know, describe yourself, but you would use the phrase human sparkler. Uh, I think it was like in your bio on your personal website and that kind of thing. Like it was kind of like your brand at the time. And I don't know if you, I feel like I haven't seen that in a while. Yeah, so I don't know yeah. if you still use that, but I, I thought of that phrase human sparkler. And then I thought like this whole time you've been smiling, like you're just always radiating joy. And I thought, when I think, as I said at the beginning, I think of you, I always think of very positive things. I think of joyful, happy. And it the, the question that kind of popped in my head this morning was like, is Jill, does Jill ever feel pressure? Like, if we all kind of get that vibe from you and like describe you that way, and that's kind of who you are to us, do you ever like feel pressure to sort of be that human sparkler? to those around you in life like if you're playing the role of the positive happy person do you ever feel pressure that like you have to always be playing that role oh tim how much time do you have <laughs> no, i'm kidding i'm kidding um i mean yes I, here's what i'll say i i am a naturally sort of upbeat person and um I just like to be laughing. I like to be smiling. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, that becomes a armor that you wear, just like any other armor that you wear. Um, and I had to find and still, you know, do to some extent, like I have my people that like I know that I can be really vulnerable with and like show that side to. But um I mean, I literally depression and anxiety run my family. I've struggled with depression and anxiety since 
college, probably before that. Um, so like I absolutely have my days where I'm like, I can't get out of bed or like I just like everything feels so hard. And I think that's, you know, the difference sometimes between maybe the more public identity um, that we showcase to the world and who our true core self is. And I think I never feel like I'm being fake because I have thought about that. Like, is this really who I am? You know, like, am I actually this way? And I don't, I don't ever feel a sense of fakeness because, and I think especially when I'm with people, like I love connecting, I love connecting. So like, I'm always going to get energy from conversations like this or spending time with people. Um, But yeah, there's absolutely something to be said about, people who are more upbeat, I guess, and chipper, like we all have a darker side, a shadow side, I guess you would call it. Um, and, and learning to give that person and that part of you space is important. And I think being, I mean, I just talked to Tracy earlier this week about being socially authentic and sort of what that is. And, um, you know, I know I'm having a very Chicago week because I met both of you and I lived in Chicago and it's just been like delightful. Um, (laughs) But it's it's that part of. How do we show up as who we truly are in all the ways and. And let that peace show, too. I don't feel like that was very profound, but (laughs) I'm just processing this as you're saying it. And I yeah. Absolutely. There are definitely days when I am not this. And yeah, it's it's okay to have both, I think. I I love that, Jill. I do. And I I I for the record, and I know you miss, didn't necessarily say this, but like I would never never thought you were being fake or anything. Um you are oh, yeah, one no. of the most genuine people I've ever met. So I, I would never uh insinuate that, but um I think you're right though. Like it is, I love how you said about the armor. Cause like, you know, it's almost like not simplifying it, but it is that simple. Like it is another piece of armor that we can wear just like any of the other pieces of armor that we could wear. Yeah. Well, and I think, especially as someone who has social anxiety, sometimes like it's an armor that's almost safe for me. Like it's like a container that I can sort of be in when I'm in public until I get to know people better and can more like let my walls down. Doesn't mean that that same like jokiness, fun, silliness isn't there. But um, yeah, we all have these things, I think, about our personality that like feel comfortable. Maybe that's the right word. They just feel comfortable. So when you're in situations that maybe you're not the most comfortable, you sort of fall back on that. I don't know. Jill, thank you so much for speaking of letting your walls down. Thank you for letting your walls down today and for this conversation. This has been, oh, I got the chills. It's one of my favorites. And thank you for being Jill Felskia. I mean, that human sparkler, um, that positivity that you exude into the world. Keep on keeping on. We We all need it, especially after the past two years. So thank you. Oh, Thank you, Tim. This was like so life giving. So. I just appreciate you. I'm glad you're. I, I'm glad you're doing this again. I'm glad you're back for season two. The world needs more of of you and and these stories. So, thank you so much. You can find all episodes of We're Only Human at We'reOnlyHumanPodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you listen to your podcasts.